theyeshiva.net. Okay, I want to welcome Brandy to our class. What's your last name? Okay, it's wonderful to have you, Brandy. Thank you for coming. And who brought you? Somebody brought you, right? Okay, okay. Gvaldik. And welcome, Hindi. <laughs> okay, we're graced with very great souls here in this class. And personalities. Great souls and great personalities. So thank you, everybody. And I want to thank very much Chaya Frischman for dedicating this class together with her husband, Elio and Chaya Frischman, in gratitude and in honor of her birthday. Mazel Tov, Larry And as she wrote in her dedication, may all the souls of humanity be healed with the coming of Mashiach very soon. Amen. And thank you very much and thank you for coming all the way from Farakaway to grace us with your physical presence, not only virtual presence. So today I want to focus on one little piece in the story of Purim in the Megillah, which is very easy to overlook and miss, because the Megillah has ten chapters, the book of Esther has ten chapters, with many, many details and nuances, and they all create a mosaic, a tapestry of a single story, which ultimately saves the Jewish people. But sometimes there are these little details and nuances that you can easily miss, but they're somehow a critical part of the story, and that's what we're going to discuss today. It's one Pasuk, it's in the second chapter of the Megillus Esther, the 11th verse, Esther, Esther, Perek Beis, Pasuk Yedalov, in your source sheets, it's the first source sheet, and by the way, we post all the source sheets on the yeshiva.net, so if anybody ever wants to review it, it's all there. So PDF there on the yeshiva.net. And let me just give the context. The context everybody remembers, probably, but just to review it very briefly and concisely. Ahasuerus is now the Persian king. He is the monarch. He is a very powerful monarch. One of the great monarchs in the Persian Empire. As the Megillah begins, his provinces are wide and broad. He rules over 127 regions or what we would call zip codes, or provinces, Medina, Medina, cities, states, country, different regions, I would say. And uh, at the third year of his rulership, in the third year of his becoming king, he decides to throw a grand party. But it's not just a party, it's not just a weekend, it's not even two weeks. It's a party that lasts for 187 days. Talk about throwing a party, right? If a year has 365 days, so basically this party continues for a half a year straight. And uh, the party is quite impressive. A lot of drinking, a lot of food, a lot of fun, a lot of entertainment, a lot of beauty, as the Megillah describes in detail. And we know the end of the story, though, is a strange one where he gets into a major fight with his queen, Vashti, and ultimately eliminates her, executes her. And now the king is in a depression because he's lonely, he's looking for a wife. And this is where his advisors suggest that he should send out delegations, he should send out ambassadors, emissaries, messengers, to be able to fetch and search, a whole search committee created 
to find the proper queen for Achashverosh. And the Megillah really dedicates a lot of space in chapter 2 to describe the process, even though it would not seem so relevant, but apparently it's relevant. Exactly how the girls were taken and found and brought and what was the procedure and how many months they had to prepare and what the preparation was, preparation, the types of perfumes that were used, the type of decorations and the system and when the king would see them and who was in charge on all these girls that were coming. And so the story continues. Esther, who is a, obviously a Jewish woman, is also taken. Matilakach Esther el Hamelach Esther is taken to the king and... He sees her, and ultimately, she also has to appear the six months, and six months, ultimately, Achashverosh takes a liking to her. The Megillah says, Vayev, he really he cherishes her, he values her, and he decides to betroth her and turn her into the queen of the Persian Empire. He marries her in the seventh year of his kingdom, Bishnas Shevelim al Remember, Vashti was killed in the third year. So for many years he was searching. There were girls coming all the time. But it's from year three, four, five, six, only the seventh year, the Megillah says. And he throws another huge feast, Mishta Esther, to celebrate his new queen, whom he values and loves so much. And he gives a tax discount, etc. In this story, when Esther is taken, and now she's in the palace, she's meeting the king, he's meeting her, she's being prepared to see him constantly, the Megillah throws out a Pasuk. Pasuk says as follows, the first source, Every single day, Mardechai would walk. And Mishalach means it wasn't just a walking once. Mishalach means he would walk back and forth. It doesn't say Mardechai Halach, you know, he went by. Mishalach, like Eshalach is Ratzayinsh, you go and you go back and you go back and you go back. So every single day, Mordechai is walking back and forth in front of the Chatzar, the courtyard, Beis Hanashim, where they had the special palace or castle or mansion where the women were stayed, where they dormed, where they were given their needs, those who were who would ultimately go for an interview to Achashverosh. Why did he do this? Ladas Eshleim Esther. To know, to be aware of the well-being of Esther, and what is happening with her. As we know, Mardachai was Esther's cousin, as the Megillah says. Esther was an orphan, and Mardachai raised her and took care of her, because as the Megillah said, she had no father and mother. So Mardachai took her in to his home, and he raised her. So now, when she was taken to the king, he couldn't stop it, but every single day he went to see what is going on. As the Megillah says, Now, at first glance, one would not see this detail as anything essential to the story. It's a nice detail. Mardachai didn't just, you know, <laughs> ignore her. He raised her and he cared for her. And he went every day. But it would seem like just, okay, it's part of the story because it happened. But the truth is, when you study the Megillah well, you see that every single nuance of the Megillah is part of a mosaic. It's literally part of a puzzle. When you have a puzzle, if you take out one piece, you don't have a puzzle anymore. Something is missing in the picture. It may be a central part of the picture, maybe, but it's a part of the picture. It's a, it's a, it's a mosaic. It's like in a symphony, you know, if you remove certain notes, you don't have, you don't have the symphony. A ballad has a certain amount of notes that creates a song. 
just like in a body, a healthy organism, has all of its diverse limbs and organs, and together they create what we call the miracle of life. A body has tens of trillions of cells. We have a doctor. How many cells do we have in the body? Still remember from university? Somewhere between 50, 60, 70 trillion cells. But once you hit that number, I don't know the difference between 40, 40 trillion, 50 trillion. I don't know what 50 trillion is, but it's, it's not, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's astounding. And every cell has its unique functionality in the body, right? To believe that that just happened randomly by mistake without a designer is a little absurd. But in any case, each one is part of the story. The same is true with history, and the same is true with the Megillah. So when you read the Megillah, you would think, Achashverosh threw a party, who cares? Why is that relevant? But you see how ultimately it will become part of a very large uh, a web, looks <laughs> like the spiritual ecosystem, where every part of the system is essential to the balance and to the functioning of our planet. And the same is true in the Megillah. So if the Megillah emphasizes this point, that Mordechai went every single day to see how she was, it's somehow essential to the story. Now at first glance it's not, because nothing happened as a result. It's not like one day when Mordechai was walking there, he saw something. The story happens independently of him visiting there. Yes, later he's going to get involved in the story when he's going to find out about an assassination attempt, and he's going to tell Esther about the assassination attempt of Bixen and Seresh. Later he's going to become part of the story because when Esther hears that the Jewish people are going to be exterminated, she summons him, she sends a message to him. I'm sorry, but when Mordechai hears that the Jewish people are going to be exterminated, he sends a message to Esther, and that's when they start communicating about the plan. But this point that he went every single day seems like a fine gesture, but nothing happens as a result of it. So it would almost seem like it is not essential to the story. So it would seem. But there's a clue. And there's always clues that the Tanakh gives in order to be able to decipher the significance and meaning of things, even if it's not explicit. And that is the word b'chal yoyim v'yoyim. It doesn't say b'chal yoyim, it says b'chal yoyim v'yoyim. Every day and day. Now in English we don't say it. Every day and day. In Hebrew, when you want to say that it was every single day, you don't say every single day, you say b'chal yoyim v'yoyim. Day, like we would say, day in, and day out, yoyim yoyim, baruch Hashem, yoyim yoyim. Not one day, but every single day. Does it say anywhere else in the Megillah these words, yoyim yoyim, twice? And the answer is it says once more. Now we have a rule in the Tanakh, it's known as gzeir shava. Gzeir shava means that when you have expressions, words, terms, that are employed in two different scenarios, or two different stories, or two different laws, there's a connection between them. This is unique to the text of the Tanakh. For example, if you're reading... If you're reading La Havdil, I don't know, you're reading Shakespeare, right? Or you're reading Dickens, or you're reading Hemingway, or you're reading Kafka, whatever you're reading. Nobody in their right mind is going to say, oh, in the first chapter, he used the word exhausted. And in chapter 33, or in another book, he also used that word. So the, it's a very absurd way of reading a book. He used the word because it's appropriate word. Yet the second, Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Jewish people 13 methods of how to learn Torah. It's called Yud Gimel Midas, Sha'a Torah Nidreshes Ben. We say them every morning in the beginning of Davening. Rabbi Yishmael Oimer, B'Shloish Esri, Midas It's basically 13 methods. It's methodol- the methodology, the formulas through which you decipher the meaning of the text of the Tanakh. 
The first one is Kalvachomer. The second one is called Gzeirah Shava. Gzeirah Shava, I would, in contemporary terms, I would define it as copy-paste. Copy-paste means, in the olden days, when you use a typewriter, for those who remember the typewriter, Zeichet Tzadik Levracha, you remember the typewriter with the ribbons, right? If I wanted to use the same word that I used in the first chapter, I had to retype it. But today, on our word processes, our computers, right? If you want to use that word, what do you have to do? Or that sentence or that paragraph, again, copy-paste. Sometimes it's cut-paste, sometimes it's copy-paste. It's a different type of editing. The concept of Gzeirah Shava is this. When Hashem dictated the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, if he used the same word in two different places, they're not disconnected. It's a copy-paste situation. So it was copied from here and pasted there, which means he wants to show that there is a link and some connection between these two stories or between these two mitzvahs. It's a very fascinating way of learning Torah. This is called Gzeirah Shava. It shows you the precision, not just of the message, but the words that are employed. That's why the Balaturim, very often, one of the things the Balaturim does in Chumash, it's a fascinating thing. And this is before he had a concordancia, before he had Google, before he had Yitzhak the Balaturim, who lived in the 14th and 15th century. Rabbeinu Yaakov Balaturim, he lived in the 1300s and then the beginning of the 1400s in, uh, in, in Spain and in Germany. So he has a sefer called Baal Haturim, right? It's a many chamashim. And let's say there'll be a word. Let's say there'll be a word, Kishura. He'll show you where that word is found in the whole Tanakh. It may be one place, it may be two places. And then he'll explain what's the connection between the two. Like there'll be the word Venishma, Venishma. The word Venishma in Parsha's Tetzava, uh, next week's Parsha. He'll show you the word Venishma is also found in the Megillah. What's the connection? What's the big word? Venishma means it was heard. You have Nasa Venishma in Parshas Mishpatim. You have Venishma Koyla Bavaya And then you have Venishma in the Megillah about the king. He shows, no, it's copy-paste. It's a very fascinating element of learning that exists only within the Tanakh. Because you can't do it with other books. It'll be quite absurd and ludicrous. Yoim Yoim says in the Megillah twice. One, I just pointed out. Bechol Yoim V'yoim Mordechai Mishalach. But there's another Yoim Yoim. The next chapter. The next chapter, the story moves on where Achashverosh has a new queen and he also appoints a new prime minister. And the new prime minister is Haman. And Haman reaches great prominence and renown to the point that Achashverosh has everyone showing him, paying him humage and, and demonstrating their, their submission and respect and awe and reverence for Haman. Besides the one Jew, Mordechai, who refuses lo yishtachava. And the Megillah says that Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman. So here the story continues. Esther Peri Gimel, Pasuk Dalet. Vayihi, ka'amram, or ba'amram, elav yoim yoim v'loishama aleyem, vayagidu lo'aman liris hayamdu divrei Mordechai, kehigid lahem ashahu yehudi. They said to Mordechai, day in and day out, that he should bow down to Haman, but he would not obey. So now they went to Haman, and they shared with him what's going on. They wanted to see who was going to triumph. Is it going to be Mordechai? Is it going to be Haman? So here you have again the words, Yoim Yoim. So we have Yoim Yoim, Bechal Yoim V'Yoim, Mordechai Meshalich. Mordechai is walking every single day. And the second time it says Yoim Yoim, day in, day out, is that every day they were asking Mordechai why he does not bow down to Haman.
this is a clue for the connection between these two things. Now, it wouldn't seem connected. One is talking about Mordechai visiting Esther every day, and one is the fact that every day when Mordechai sees Haman, he doesn't bow down. So there's an interpretation in the Svasemes. The Svasemes in Purim, Tafresh Lamad Zion, that's 1877. It's a third source. He gives perspective, number one, on the connection between the Yom Yoms, more importantly, on the meaning why this is part of the story. Let's just remember the chronological facts. Achashvedish's party happened in the third year of his kingdom. Vashti was eliminated. Four years he's looking for a queen. In the seventh year of his kingdom, he betrothes, he marries Esther. So that's from year three to year seven. Took quite a few years. Haman was appointed prime minister after that, but the decree against the Jewish people only happened in the 12th year of Ahasuerus' reign. So there were many, many years that transpired between the feast of Ahasuerus until the decree of Haman. It's not like when you read the Megillah, it takes 20 minutes or a half an hour in Shul. It looks like the whole story happened in a half an hour. But the story didn't happen in a half an hour. The story happened... It took longer than a decade. It took more than 12 years for Achashverosh to become a king and then to make a party. And then the seventh year, Esther becomes the queen. And then the twelfth year, Haman comes out with the decree. And then another year passes until it's oh, till the Jewish people would have been killed and they saved themselves. So you're talking about many, many years. The party in year three, the marriage to Esther in year seven, and the decree of Haman to exterminate the Jewish people in year 12. So now let's think about this. When it says that Mordechai walked every single day to visit Esther, how long did this happen for? (laughs) Did it happen for a week that he went every day? Did it happen for a month that he went every day? So let's see what the Svasama says. Every detail that's in the Megillah is part of the story of the miracle that happens. In other words, there are no details in the Megillah that are just part of a history lesson on the Persian Empire without relevance to the story. It's interesting to discuss history, but if it's in the Megillah's Esther, it's part of the Purim story. If it's part of the Purim story, it's part of the miracle story. So there's not a detail in the Megillah that if you don't study it well, you will not find how it is essential, intrinsic, or part of the total story. It's not like, you know, once we're talking about the palace, let me already throw in some more details. You know, when you write a novel, writers like to give background information, discuss the color of uh, of what the weather was like that day, simply to draw you into the story, you know, how long her hair was and what color her hair was and what type of eyes she had and what type of mood she had and how tall she was and what type of disposition. You're familiar with this genre? In Chumash, you don't see this, very rarely. We don't know what Moshe Rabbeinu looked like. We don't know what Avram Avinu looked like. We don't know. It would be interesting to know, but we don't know what Moshe Rabbeinu looked like. You have to think about Moshe Rabbeinu only in terms of his his personality, his contributions. Sometimes the Tanakh will identify physical features only when it's part of the story. For example, Avshalom's long hair. Avshalom's long hair becomes part of the story. Ultimately, it becomes his death sentence. Yosef's handsomeness, Yosef's physical beauty is an important part of the story, why the wife of Potiphar is so, is so uh, dr- drawn to him, etc. 
But any detail is essential somehow to the plot of the story. So the Vassama says if it's part of the Megillah, it's part of the Purim story. And then here is the question. Mordechai walking every day is very nice. <laughs> he got to exercise, he got to find out what happens with Esther. He took a walk every day, it's a great thing. But is it part of the story? So he says, But the truth is, this is certainly a very great story. Think about it. Already four, five years passed from when she was taken. And yet Mordechai went every single day for years to see how Esther is doing. Because Mordechai, it's not that Mordechai went the first week when she was there, he went every day. As long as she was in the palace, Mordechai went to see, went to visit every day. Now he couldn't necessarily go in. It was, they were, they were, they were located in a private place, as we would say today, quarantined, not because of Corona, but because of the crown they were dealing with. Because of Achashverish. But he wanted to be in the vicinity. When you're in the vicinity, you could sometimes take a peek. You hear, you see the atmosphere, you get to conversations with people. You know, he must have built some connections over there. So what the, what the Sfasemis says, what the Megillah is telling us is, if Esther became a king when, a queen, when Achashverish was in the seventh year of his reign, the decree of Haman only happened in year 12. So you're talking about seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Could be anywhere, we don't know the exact dates, but it could be four years, five years, six years, that Mordechai goes every single day, to see how Esther is doing. And you could see the way the Chazal explained this passing in Madrash Rabbah and in Rashi, that this was not just in the beginning, it continued throughout her reign. Now here is the question. I can understand when Esther was taken to Achashverosh, there was dread, there was panic, there was anxiety, there was concern. And Mordechai, who felt so responsible for Esther, goes to look after her. That's very normal. But afterwards, she became the queen. <laughs> afterwards, she became the queen. Even later, before that, Achashverosh obviously was extremely pleased with her. Her life wasn't in danger she was, the, the Megillah says, whatever she wanted, she was given. She was given special food. She was given special treatment because the king was crazy about her. So I can understand the first week, Mordechai was worried. In the beginning, I understand the first week, he's anxious, he's worried. Afterwards, she's loved by the king. She becomes the most powerful lady in the Persian Empire, what we call today the first lady. So you would think... Why does Mordechai need to go every single day, walk back and forth, not even going in? It's not like he's going to have tea, he's going to <laughs> have a shmuas, he's going to spend time. She was where she was. And there were very, very serious protocols, where you can go, when you can go, how you can go, even though Mordechai was a prominent person. Nonetheless, for years, he goes. And the Megillah says, Bechal Yoim V'yoim. What does Bechal Yoim V'yoim mean? Seven days a week. Doesn't say most of the days. Or Bechal Yoim, you could say every day, which, yeah, Rubai could call it. Bechal Yoim V'yoim means every single day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbos. 
Now you might say, he wanted to know how she's doing. Yeah, he cared about her. But now let's think about something else. Mardechai was the leader of the Sanhedrin. Chazal say that Mardechai was the Rosh Hashanah. Sanhedrin was considered the body of spiritual leadership of the Jewish people that already began in the days of Moshe. Moshe appointed 70 partners, 70 elders, Skenim. Together with him it was 71. And this became the body of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak, responsible for the spiritual and physical welfare of the Jewish people. And this went on for generations. Throughout the years in the desert and then in Eretz Yisrael, every generation there was a Sanhedrin, and they were literally the most important body representing all of Klal Yisrael. Every major dispute, every major debate, the most complicated situations, the halachas, etc., etc. Mardechai in his generation was the leader of the Sanhedrin, which essentially means he was the God Lador, he was the leader of the, the spiritual leader of the generation. As Chazal say clearly, he was the greatest teacher of the time. Because he was the head of the Sanhedrin, they used to appoint. The head of the Sanhedrin was like Moshe Rabbeinu. He was like the represented, known as the Nasi, he was like Moshe Rabbeinu. So you understand that this is a person who was busy, who was occupied, who was busy with the concerns of his people. Esther is safe. A week passed, a month passed, two months passed. You could send a shliach. Call one of the bachim of the yeshiva, one of the guys who anyway has a hard time sitting a whole day at the table. Yeah, you have a few of those, yeah? Send him. You can go once a week, you can go once a month. No. Mordechai did not send a shliach. Bechol yoyim v'yoyim, Mordechai himself for seven days. You could think a person who has the Jewish world on his shoulders and Esther now, Baruch Hashem, is safe. Not only is she safe, she's the most powerful lady in the entire empire. Nobody's touching her. The king himself is completely in awe of her, as the Megillah says. At some point, you could send an emissary. He did not. For years, years, he woes every single day. Says this Fasem is why? Leroy Shloima. He wanted to see how she is. She was an orphan. And he knew the pain that Esther has of being in the home of Achashverish who was not only not Jewish, he was the Persian king, he was very, very far cry from what Esther imagined for her life and her trajectory, and now she's stuck over there, even though she's given all this honor, but this is not not something that she chose. Mordechai felt this, and he knew that he needs to show up every day to give Esther a message, I'm here, I'm thinking about you, if I could get a glimpse of you, I'll get a glimpse of you. I want to see what's happening. I want to know what you're doing. What's going on? And he says, And because of this, the whole miracle happened. Because of this. So this verse in the chapter 2 of Esther is not an incidental verse. By the way, Mordechai used to go there every day. The Sfasemis says this verse is a key to the story. Why did Mordechai have the privilege to become a conduit for such a stupendous miracle to save the entire Jewish people, it's because for seven days a week, for four years or five years or six years, from when Esther was taken to Achashverosh, all the way until he was appointed the Prime Minister of Persia instead of Haman, which was later, after the Purim story happened, and Mordechai was already brought into the palace. But for four or five or six years, depends how you calculate the years, Mordechai himself, went every single day 
Not necessarily even to help. What can he help? She's the queen of the Persian Empire. What is he going to do? He's going to bring her kugel. He's going to bring her cholent. He's going to cook kasha for her. What is he going to do for her? Whatever she needed, she got in the palace. Simply, as the Pasuk says, La da, says Shlaim Esther. To show up. Show up to know what's happening with Esther. To know what is going on with her. And this Fasemah says this, this was the privilege that caused the entire miracle. Because Mardachai did this. So this little Pasuk, which doesn't seem significant in the whole story because it's not part of the plot, he says this is the story. Because Mardachai had this type of commitment and generosity of spirit and courage and, and, and love and sensitivity and empathy, even though every excuse in the world could have prevented him from doing it. But he didn't stop, and he didn't even send an emissary. This is why he could become a conduit for such a miracle. Now, when we think about these words of the Sfar Samadhan, how he explains the Megillah, it obviously has a very, very profound and relevant message, because sometimes you may know of a person, maybe your own child, maybe somebody else's child, maybe a friend, may even be yourself. Here's Esther, a wonderful young woman, and she's trapped. On many levels, she has a very good life that other people would be jealous of, but from her own perspective, she's trapped in the house of a Hashverish. So sometimes a person thinks, what's the benefit of showing up for this person day in and day out? Day I'm not changing anything. They are where they are. They are who they are. Fine. Give a call once a month. You want to come visit, come once a year, come once in six months. You have to understand the circumstance. It's not like you have nothing else to do. Nothing else to do with your life, okay, so you do this. As I told you, Mardachai was the busiest person of the generation. <laughs> and many people would have been honored to be his shluchim, to be his emissary, to do it. So sometimes a person thinks, a child has a challenge, maybe trapped in the house of a chashverish, whatever that looks like, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, trapped in certain challenges, trapped in a depression, trapped in addiction, trapped in anxiety, trapped in various broken components internally or externally where a person may be. And this was not Mardechai's biological child. Mardechai took responsibility for herself. A person could sometimes think, what's the benefit of showing up for one person who's in a particular situation, a difficult situation? It's not like I can go and take them out. Day in and day out, seven days a week. And you also need some time to breathe. Seven days a week he goes. And yet, this Pasuk, the Megillah says, in many ways is the core of the whole story. This is what Humar Dechai was. He was the person who said, I'm going to show up every single day. There was the Chidushi Harim, who was the Zayd of the Sfasem, as the first guy Rebbe, Rebbe Chimeir. So he once said, nobody ever won an argument over me. He says, one man once. What happened? He says, Ayid came over to him and he said, I need to speak to you. So he says, I really don't have time. If it's a fast thing, fine. He said, no, I need, a, I need, I need, I need, 
So Chidush Arim was one of the biggest uh, rabbis in Poland, and he had a lot, a lot of students. He had a lot on his plate, a lot on his head. So he said, now is not a good time. So the Yid looks at him and he says, Ich hab Zeit, 20 Jahre handeln mit meinem kranken Tochter. Und ihr habt nicht keine Zeit für mich? A paar Minuten? 20 years I found time to take care. He had a daughter who was very sick, this man. 20 years I'm taking care of her. And you can't have a few minutes for me. Chidush says, <laughs> this Jew, so to speak, defeated him. Because he was telling him something very profound. You know, we have all seen situations, some of you know this firsthand, and maybe even more than firsthand, so to speak. You have mothers or you have fathers who show up for their children, who are in difficult situations day in and day out, and they don't always know what's going to be. And it's very easy to get derailed, to get discouraged, to say, you know, every day I'm going to show up with food, every day I'm going to show up with a love, every day I'm going to show up with a telephone call, every day I'm going to show up with a card, every day I'm going to be in good spirits. It's already going on for years and years. Let it go. Because you don't always see the results, you don't always see the consequences. And it becomes very, very frustrated. Sometimes there are children, teenagers, or different ages that are struggling. And a person says, you know, fine, I'll take you out, we'll go on a vacation for a few days, let's fix the problem and that's it. But sometimes you're dealing with things that are very, very deep. You're dealing with traumas that are profound, you're dealing with pain that is profound. Mordechai teaches the consistency that every day he showed up and he told Esther, you're not alone. Not only did it change everything for Esther, but the whole story happened because of that. Because of that, he could be a conduit to save the whole world. So people... They often get discouraged. I just want to see the results and let's move on with life and come out. Get, get out of your room. Snap out of this mishagas. Become a normal person. Be productive. I'm up five in the morning. You should be up five in the morning. Okay, we'll hike in khaki at park. 6.30 you could be already making breakfast. Go to sleep early and have a normal productive life. And yes, everybody wishes that. <laughs> and ourselves and on others. What Mardukai teaches is a specific paradigm. And that is, he didn't know what's going to happen. How is he going to know what's going to happen? She was taken. He didn't know. This is before, remember, this is before there was any Purim drama. We're reading it in the Megillah. We already know, you know. It's going to end up with Hamantashen and a big party. But when he's walking every day to the palace, what is he walking towards? Nothing. A girl that's by the king, and he shows up. There's no, there's no drama here. There's no fanfare. Nobody's honoring him. Nobody's patting him on his back. Nobody's rewarding him. There's no convention to celebrate him, to give him a plaque. Wow, you're such a nice guy. He just knows what Esther needs more than anything else is attachment. She needs to know that somebody's thinking about her. Even if he can't go in. Obviously, if he did it for five years, I'm sure she figured it out. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes you reach out to a child, to a student, to a friend. They're not capable of receiving the love. I don't want. I'm not in the mood. I'm not interested in you. It's very easy to get turned off. You know what? You're not in the mood. I'm also not in the mood. I'm much less in the mood. Trust me, Shafala. What happens is we get lured in to the brokenness. Instead of remaining in a position of firm leadership, responsibility, and love. It's a very normal thing. But you see here from Mordechai, sometimes spiritually, emotionally, a person is not even capable of receiving anything. So they come into the kitchen, 
And all you want to do is give them a Mishaberach, and not a nice Mishaberach. You want for me to be able to cultivate my highest angels and smile and welcome the person when the response may be something far, far less than I would love. Last time I bought something, it was rejected and thrown in my face. How much can a person deal with this? So some people shut down very fast, and it's a normal response. What Mordechai taught here is what real attachment looks like, what real leadership looks like. Not that it's not painful. It may be very painful. But the person who understands what brokenness is, Mordechai said what she needs more than anything else is to know somebody cares. Because one day, that's going to be internalized. Now in Esther's case, obviously she was not emotionally estranged from Mordechai. She cherished Mordechai. And the Gemara is even an opinion that they were married to each other and that marriage had to experience the rupture because she was taken to Achashverosh. There's nothing Mordechai can do about it. But the lesson from this is in all cases where somebody's trapped, even in a big palace and a big castle and a big palace, and it may be very tempting and luring, Mordechai doesn't even send emissaries, the the head of the Sanhedrin, to go every single day for one girl who's trapped, not send anybody else, Shabbos and Sunday and Tuesday and Yom Tif in the middle of the days, I would say even Purim, but this was before Purim. But because of this there was Purim, but even on Purim, <laughs> what would become Purim? Mordechai found time, why? So that Esther knows somebody cares. So when you're doing this for somebody... When you're doing this for somebody, and sometimes you got to do it for yourself too. you got to check in every day how you're doing. You're doing this for a child, for a student, for a friend, for a relative, for a neighbor. Of whatever age, and whatever gender, whatever situation and circumstances, this, this Pasuk in the Megillah is really the core of the story. That's why the whole world was changed. That's why the whole miracle happened. Don't underestimate this. It's easy, it's easy again to become very annoyed and depleted. Vifal is Ashir. I did it a month, I did it two months, I did it three months. No! Reciprocity. But that's understandable, but it comes from a lack of understanding. When a person is trapped, they're trapped. Esther couldn't reciprocate at the moment. She couldn't. Achashverosh held on to her. Emotionally speaking, sometimes people are held down by certain situations. I would love to emancipate myself. I don't even know how to. But just because I'm not free, it doesn't mean you should not be free. Just because I am downtrodden and wretched, it doesn't mean you have to become wretched. So this takes a vision of deep, deep expansiveness to understand who Esther is, what she needs. Now, the yoim yoim now becomes clear. Where's the second Yoim Yoim? They told Mordechai every day, why are you driving Haman crazy? Because every day he went to the palace, he didn't miss a day, he was Zoycha that he got Haman angry every single day. Which was the beginning of Haman's defeat. By Mordechai not bowing down to Haman, 
That is what triggered Haman's animosity. That's why he wanted to destroy the Jewish people. And that's what brought out his evil. And that's why he was defeated. Why was Mardukai Zoyche every day to make Haman sugar? In other words, to defeat the evil of Haman. Because he went every day to the palace. So the two Bechol Yom V'yoyims are not random. Copy-paste, this is the Gzair Shava. Because Bechol Yom V'yoyim, he went to the palace. So something else happened in a different realm. In a different neighborhood. In a different hour. But also Bechol Yom V'yoyim. What else happened? Mordechai had something going on every single day. He went to visit every day Esther. And every single day, Haman was made to feel a little smaller because of Mardukai, to the point that this grand anti-Semite was ultimately defeated. Why was he Zoycha for this? What does it Every day they told us to him? Yeah, because every day Haman plots. Every day Haman's ego was deflated more and more. So every day they were telling Mardukai, no, maybe today you can appease Haman. Maybe today you can appease the crocodile. Appeasement, uh, Churchill said, is feeding the crocodile in the hope that he'll eat you last. Eat you, he'll eat you. The question is when. Mardukai said, I'm not in the business of appeasement. So why did he manage to do this yoim yoim, to be able to defeat Haman from something of a completely different story? Because yoim yoim, he had the courage and the love and the affection to be able to be there for that lonely Jewish girl who was an orphan and who was now trapped in a home and had nobody, had no father and no mother and no support. And this person was there. Now you would think, you would think, Stam, it's, it's a nice thing. Look at the last Pasuk of the Megillah. When you look at the last Pasuk of the Megillah, how does it end? The Gemara says in Brachas, everything follows the end. What's the end? The last Pasuk in the Megillah gives somewhat of a, I'm not going to say a eulogy, but somewhat of a goodbye, farewell to Mardechai, our hero. And it says, Ki A lot of people don't concentrate at this Pasuk because it's after a fast, Tainas Sester, and they're hungry. But this is a very powerful Pasuk. Mordechai Yehudi was the second in command to Achashverosh. This is already after the victory against Haman. Mordechai was appointed prime minister. This is years later. He's the, now the second in command. V'gadala Yehudim. He's a gadol. He's great among the Jews. He's accepted by most of his brothers. There's always a few people who don't like you. The Evan Ezra writes, there's always a few people who are not going to like you. You could save the Jewish people, but there's always going to be a nishtfagin who says, eh? It's called Lakemetaaf. They make with their nose. I don't know how you say it in English. They have an expression in English. Mefakrumte nose, huh? Snub your nose. In Yiddish, it's better. Mefakrumte nose. Makemetaaf. Reivach Doirish Toivla Amoy. He inquired. He searched for the welfare of his people. V'doiver Shalom Lecholzarei, and he spoke peacefully to all of his children. Now let's think about this. This is the extolling the virtue of Mardukai. What was his greatness? So I understand he was the prime minister of Persia. That's a pretty big accomplishment for a Jew. Mardukai becomes a prime minister. I remember when Joe Lieberman, the senator of Connecticut, was running, you remember? On the ticket of Al Gore. Al Gore wanted to be president, and Joe Lieberman, Yosef Lieberman, would be the vice president. And it was a very interesting phenomenon, because if it would have worked out, it would have been the first Jewish 
vice president in the history of the United States of America. And as usual, some Jews were very pro it, and some Jews were against it, as always. So uh, the anecdote goes that uh, Al Gore lost and Joe Lieberman lost. And that night, Joe Lieberman came home to his wife, Hadassah, her name is Hadassah. And she greeted him at the door and she said, don't worry, Joe, don't be dejected in this home, you will always be vice president. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I was once in Miami, I was at a lecture there by Yehudi conference, and uh, I needed to get a plane back and my taxi didn't show up. And I was a little late because the lecture was went late. I had to rush to the airport. And suddenly I see uh, Senator Joe and Hadassah Lieberman uh, on the street and they have a driver. So uh, even though maybe it wasn't the right thing, I went over to them and I said, you're going to the airport. They were going. <laughs> so I said, can I hop a tramp, as they say? Can I get a tramp? So in the car, I turned to Hadassah Lieberman and I said, you know, I've been saying this joke for years about you. And I don't know if it's true or not, so can I verify? It's a great story, but I want to verify <laughs> if it happened or it didn't happen. So she said, what's the story? So I told her and her husband the story. So she said, it's a good story, <laughs> whatever that means. But in any case, why am I talking about it? Oh, so Mardukai becomes the prime minister of Egypt. God Yehudim. He's a godl among the Jewish people. That's pretty powerful. Most Jews like him. You know what? Not bad. Most Jews like him. I'm good. I like him too. He dedicates his life to bring out the good in his people, to, to do anything good for this people. But that's not the end. What's the summation? The last words. He could speak peacefully. Shalom means peacefully, and Shalom's the word shleimus, wholesomeness, to all of his children. So the Ebenezer writes over there, he says, sometimes people who are very big and prominent for the world, they're celebrities and heroes, but their own children feel alienated from them. The greatness of Mardukai was, he was the prime minister of Persia. That was the empire of the time. He was God Yehudim. He just saved the whole nation. But the Megillah says, now let me tell you the greatest thing. The greatest thing was that all of his children, all of his descendants felt close to him. They felt a peacefulness in his presence. They felt accepted and embraced by him. They were at peace when they saw him. He was at peace when he saw them. And it says, all of his children, Sometimes you have children who give you what we call easy nachas. Okay. They come into the room and mommy is glowing, tati is glowing. Valedictorian! Like Pasek Puma Megir said, the report cards are glowing. The Shatchanim are knocking down the doors already for seven years. From the bris, they're already knocking on the door. <laughs> you like my humor, Hindi? But then you have... Sometimes it's a little more complicated. You have that child, looks like ended up in Achashverish's domain. The power of Mordechai was a sense of peace, of oneness, of connection, of attachment with every single one of his descendants. And that becomes 
the summation of the whole Megillah. You would think an Askin who is world-renowned, such a world-renowned, how does he have time for his children? He's not parochial. He's not even local. He's in the palace. He has to run the country. He has to make sure another Haman doesn't come to the sea. Comes the Megillah and says, I'll tell you all the great things about Mardukai. Now I'll tell you the greatest thing about Mardukai. He didn't forget his children. Dover Shalom Lechol Zarai. All of them. Comes the Medrash and puts these two things together. If you see, second to the last source, Esther Rabba Vovchas. This is Medrash Rabba and Esther. Every day Mardukai walked before the courtyard of the home where the women stayed. And this Medrash is the source of this Fasemus. Omar Reb Yaakov Baracha. Reb Yaakov, the son of Achaset. Omar Lo Yaakadosh Baruch Hu Hashem tells to Mardukai. And when it says Hashem tells to Mardukai, it doesn't necessarily mean there was a voice from heaven that speaks to Mardukai one day. It means that there was an inner consciousness that Mardukai appreciated that came from Hashem. Hashem says, Ata darashta shalom nefesh achas. You were busy seeking the welfare of one soul. Ladas is Shloim Esther. Esther, an anonymous Jewish girl, a fine Yiddish Amedala, a beautiful girl. Esther was Yerushama, a wonderful person. One soul. And one soul was taken and eh, you gave your life to look out for this one soul. Chayecha, I swear to you. Soivcha lidrosh Shloim Uma Shloima. At the end you're going to be looking out and guaranteeing the welfare of an entire nation. So you would think, it's just a segula connection. You worked out for one person, I'm giving you a schar. It's not a segula. It's essentially connected. Because the value of a nation is that it's made up of individuals. And if I couldn't care less about an Esther... So then, with more numbers, is just more attention, more paparazzi, more WhatsApp, more WhatsApps. But essentially, if you care about Esther, this means you're capable of tuning in to the value of a soul which is infinite. So, consequentially, you're the one who's going to ensure the welfare of an entire nation. And it's fascinating because we see the same thing with Moshe Rabbeinu, the story of him shepherding the flock and one goat ran away and he picked up that goat. And the story of David HaMelech, the way he... And both of them became timeless leaders of the Jewish people that changed the trajectory of our people. Moshe turned us into a nation and David turned us into a united nation and David Melech Yisrael Chayvakayim. And now after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it was Mardechai, Mardechai who saved the Jewish people. So you have here the concept... And a, 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 a very profound salute, and I'm going to use this opportunity to salute all those mothers sitting here or listening or who will listen, and fathers, and mothers, mothers, fathers, and other individuals who, who, who their consistency to be there with people, loved ones, or other people that come into their, their sphere of influence consistently, and only you know, and only heaven knows what that takes out of you. Because it's the consistency, day in, day out. And it's not like I'm showing up and somebody is giving me medals. And it's not like I'm showing up and I'm seeing tremendous success. And it's not like I'm showing up and I'm changing the world and I'm saving the situation. I'm showing up with a smile. 
I'm showing up with a roll of sushi. I'm showing up with a iced coffee. I'm showing up with a milkshake. I'm showing up with a piece of cheesecake. I'm showing off with some unhealthy luxury and cheese or lasagna. I'm showing up with a smile, with, with a poem, with love, with gesture. I came back from a store and I was thinking about you. Here's some chocolate that I picked up. I'm showing up with my best and most loving self to tell you, you're not alone. And our relationship is unconditional. And I believe in you even at moments when you don't believe in yourself. And the people who do this and do this day in, day out, know very well what it takes out of them. Because it's not rewarded immediately and not even in the same year always and sometimes not even in the same five years and sometimes not even in the same decade although we always want to (laughs) try to hasten things up but as some things are out of our control and this is the value of this pasuk that the medrash and the svasemes are showing how this one pasuk about mordechai is capturing a major theme in the middle that you can easily miss. Mardukai is a hero, he's brilliant, he's wise, he's courageous, that's all true. He's fearless, he leads the world, him and Esther, you know, power team, they take down a Hitler, Gewaldic, it's all true. But there's that one little detail of who Mardukai really was. Mardukai was a person who walked every day, and remember, he didn't have a car. He didn't have a chauffeur. <laughs> I don't know if he went on a donkey, or he went on a camel, he went on a horse. <laughs> Mishalich means he walked every single day. Why? Not to savor, he couldn't. To show up. I'm here. And you know you're in the kitchen. And you may have a daughter struggling or a son struggling or a nephew or a niece or a student or a friend. And they come in and they come in and the dress is not perfect. And they're coming for many, many hours of sleep. And a part of you or a part of me, you know, you want to implode or explode. (laughs) Which is all normal, it's all understanding. You know, my reptilian brain is triggered by your reptilian brain. You're trying to survive and I'm also trying to survive. And that ability to be able to have that expansiveness of Mordechai, not by eliminating the other parts of your personality, feeling it, having compassion for it, breathing into it, but then saying, and now it's important to ask myself, what do I really, really want? Do I want to connect more to this person or do I want to say something that will ultimately create a rupture in our relationship? And that ability at that moment to show up, I want to know how you are and I want you to feel that I want to know how you are without agendas, without any agendas and without figuring out and games and tricks, which some of us are good at, until your kids teach you it doesn't work. It could be undervalued and underestimated. This pasta gives us the kayach. and says, Mordechai did it, and because of that, he could defeat Haman. Because of that, God said, you did it to this person, you're the right person to do it to an entire nation. It's in those lonely visits, because I promise you, when he did this five years, five years straight, he didn't know there's going to be a shear about this in the year 2023. He didn't know. He didn't know anything. How would he know? Esther was trapped. It was a tragic story. He had a, a, a girl, or even a wife, and she was taken. How are you supposed to feel? He went. He showed up. He didn't know what's going to happen. But because of that, look, God knew what's going to happen. It got recorded in the Megillah. And the Megillah says, Hashem says, you're the one who's going to be able to save a whole nation. When you save a whole nation, your children are going to be at peace with you. 
We've all seen in history, and we see it today, sometimes people who are famous and big, it's very nice for the world, but their children suffer. Their children don't feel that connection. And sometimes people, especially in the name of their own insecurities, they ride on the status of the respect you get from everybody else, and it compensates for the lack of a relationship with family, and it really it destroys, destroys people in a very deep way. That was the greatest compliment of Mordechai. He became the greatest Jew with Doire Shalom Lechol Every one of his children said, ah, they felt that closeness, they felt that peace. How did he manage to do it? Because he didn't start off as Mordechai, the God of He started off going every day to the palace to think about Esther. And here the Medrash gives us one final detail, which really completes the picture. If you look in the last source, it says, Esther Rabbi Vav, Vav, Sixth chapter of Medrash Rabbah and Esther. And Rashi also quotes it. Says the Medrash, there was something else going on. Omar Mordechai said, How is it possible that this Sadekis, he knew Esther, he raised this girl, she was an orphan, she was in his house. How is it possible that this Sadekis should get married to an Oral? An Oral literally means somebody uncircumcised. But essentially it's a metaphor for how is Esther supposed to end up with a Hashverish? There's something bizarre here. Like this is God's humor? Elo! Sha'asid davar gadol she'yera al Yisrael v'asidim li'natzil al yada. Mordechai had not knowledge, but what you call premonition. What is it called? Uh, intuition, intuitive. In Germany, in German there's a word that's called Spitzenfingergefühl. You know what Spitzenfingergefühl means? A sixth sense. It's a feeling at the edge, <laughs> the edge of your nail. Spitzenfinger. He had a, he had an intuition, a sixth sense. Esther was a tzaddikus. How in the world, from all the women, Achashverosh had to like her? Instead of building a Jewish family like she wanted, this is where she ends up in? Mordechai knew there's a story beyond him. There's a different story that he can't figure out. doesn't have to wrap his brain around it. Something big is going to happen, and Esther's position is going to prove to be the key factor. So Mordechai walking there every day, he couldn't predict it. He couldn't orchestrate it. He couldn't imagine it. He's supposed to know what Haman the Meshuggah anti-Semite is going to do. You think Jews in 1931 could imagine what Hitler is going to do? Who can imagine? You know, hindsight is 2020. Foresight is sometimes zero zero. I just made that up, but it's true. It's good, yeah? You know, you could see life from the back, not from the front. From the back, you could look at it. So Mordechai couldn't predict. But every day he went there to visit, to see what's happening. He was present. He knew, I don't know the whole story. But there's sometimes a story completely beyond you. What do you do? You don't have to guess. You don't have to understand. Show up. Be there. Be there. We don't know why it happened. We don't know why Esther was taken. It was a tragedy. We don't know how it's going to work out. But he understood there's some meaning here beyond what I have to wrap my brain around. Like he tells Esther later, I once gave a shia, means not, I don't know. Who knows? Some things are beyond us. That's why we celebrate Purim by Adaloyada. You don't have to know. If you want to figure out everything about your life, everything about your child's life, everything about your marriage, everything about your past, 
Trust me, you use Das, it's sometimes a very poor instrument <laughs> through which to figure these great things out. But what did Mardukai do? He didn't run away, he didn't retreat. He said, so let me be present and patient and consistent and loving. And indeed, his presence there allowed him ultimately to hear what Bixen and Seresh had in plot to assassinate Achashverish. Ultimately, at the right moment, Esther could send him a message because he was hanging out there and he could start the process. Mordechai could send Esther a message and she could send him back a message. I want to share a story with you. I want to conclude the class with this story. The story happened, you know, history, history books have recorded much, not all, but much of what happened in the Holocaust and the results of the German war against the Jewish people and against the world that began in 1939. What's much less known is the tragic fate of Russian Jewry. Even though Stalin killed more people than Hitler, but because of the magnitude of Hitler's actions and the systematic genocide, that, so to speak, took front page of the news. And Stalin's atrocities and what generally happened in Russia is much, much less known, the suffering of the Jewish people in Russia, before the World War and after the World War and during the World War. There was a Jew living in Babrysk. Babrysk is a city in what they used to call White Russia, Vice Rusland, Belarus. Why is it called White Russia, you know? You don't know. Wow, okay. Adeloyada, you're also not allowed to know something. You don't have to know. But do your homework. Why is it called White Russia? Why Vice Rusland? Today it's Belarus. It used to be called Vice Rusland. White Russia. Rusya Halavana. And it was a city, Babrois. Babrois was a very famous Jewish community. Prominent leaders. There was the Baruch Mordechai of Babrois. Talmud of the Vilmagon, the Balatanya, and the Pillow Paritra. He had great Jews in Babrois. Like all of Jews of Belarus, most of them were decimated and murdered by the Germans during the Second World War. This Jew lived in Babrysk. His name was Rebzusha Margolin. As the Second World War broke out, and in June 1941, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in his Blitzkrieg. Stalin did not expect it because he had a peace treaty. Russia and Germany had a peace treaty known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Accords. The foreign minister of Russia and Germany made a peace treaty. They split up Poland between them, and Stalin did not expect in June 41 for Hitler to invade the Soviet Union. Russian casualties exceeded any other country because of the success of Germany initially in Russia. And like many citizens, Zusha Margolin from Babroysk was drafted into the Russian army. Most people who were drafted to the Russian army in the Second World War never returned. The casualties of the Russian army, the, the millions and millions and millions, crazy numbers. He left a wife, her name was Nechama, Nechama Margolin, and she had three children. She had a baby boy, Mamash a baby, and two daughters, who were around nine or ten years old. One daughter's name, the older daughter was Mina, and the younger daughter was Toiva. Toiva. Mina, Toiva, and a small baby, a, a, a child, a, a male, a, a, a Ingala, a boy. The Germans were invading Belarus, she realized that they will not survive here. 
you know, the Jews debated because in the First World War, the Germans were nice. Many of the Germans were nice, so the many Jews thought they'll stay, they'll have it better under the Germans than under the Russians. But she realized that she won't survive, so she decided to escape, like many Jews, to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan was safe, the Germans did not reach there, to the city of Tashkent. Tashkent had a larger Jewish community, was more concentrated, but it was a long journey. So she took her three children, her husband was drafted to the army, she didn't know where he was, Minna Tova and the baby boy, and they started the journey to Uzbekistan. The hunger at that time in Russia was devastating. People were dying from hunger, day in and day out, yoim yoim. There was such a shortage of food. And indeed, Nechama too had very, very little food. And in this long journey, she had barely morsels of bread, and most of them she gave to her children so they would survive. Until one night... She couldn't bear the hunger anymore, and she went into a faint, and she died from starvation. This was on the way to, on the way to Tashkent, on the way to Uzbekistan. So they had two little girls with a little baby boy to fend for themselves. The oldest, Minna, I think, was ten years old. A little, another girl, Tova, and and a baby boy. And after a few weeks, the baby boy didn't survive either. He also died. So these two girls buried their mother, and then they buried their brother, and, you know, talk about being alone in the world. And this is all in 1941, 42. So they're alone. So there were some good people, you know, Russian Gentiles who met them and saw what's going on, and they put them in an orphanage. It was what you call today a base Hayesim, an orphanage that was run by the, by the Soviet government. It was 600 kilometers from Tashkent. That's around 300, 400 miles from Tashkent, where there was a Jewish community. Understand how far that is. That's where they put them, because that was an orphanage that was available. And these two poor girls were growing up, but at least they had a bed and they had food. They could survive. And they spent there all the years of the war, until the end of the war, which was 1945. The Second World War came to an end. And here these girls are in this orphanage, literally alone, and the war is over. So the leader, the woman who ran the orphanage, came over to them and said, now the war is over. So whoever has any family, we're getting in touch with family, and uh, they're going back to family. Do you have any family? She said, you know our story. Our father is gone. He was in the war. Our mother died. Our brother died. We don't have anybody. We're the only ones. So he said is there maybe an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, a grandparent. They said, we have, but we, we are going to find them. So the, 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 the woman says, do you have any recollection of an address, an address, a home address of anybody who may be related to you or any Jew who might be interested in you? And they're thinking, an address? <laughs> Where are they supposed to have an address from? And... Uh, so she says, listen, don't worry. If you don't find anybody, you'll just stay here. You'll stay here until you're, you know, until you're adults and you'll make a life for yourself. Minna knew very well that means complete disconnection from the Jewish people for eternity for her and her sister. So she's trying to rack her brain. Does she know an address of any person? And then she remembers something that happened when she was a little girl. They grew up in Babrysk. They had a farm. The farms in Belarus produce good chickens. 
and good geese and good turkey, good tkachkas. Now, some of you still do this. Some of you remember it from your mother and grandmother. They did not use oil on Pesach. What did they use? Schmaltz. And how do you make schmaltz? From the fat, yeah? From the fat of the chicken or the geese or the turkeys. Baba? Gribbenus. Avada? Avada? Better than macaroons? Much better. How do you compare? People don't know what they're missing. Ah, you're fleshic, yeah. That's the point of Pesach, to be fleshic. No ice cream, no pizza. We all lose weight. <laughs> they their farm had such good uh, 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 geese that their mother Nechama would make schmaltz every year before Pesach and send it to her sister. She had a sister living in Leningrad. Leningrad is Russia, proper Russia. It was the capital. Petersburg became Leningrad. It was the capital for many years till it went to Moscow. And uh, her sister Drezer, her name was Raskin. I knew her husband, his name was Yaakov Yosef Raskin. They lived in Leningrad, and she would send schmaltz to Leningrad so her sister would be able to have a geschmacker Pesach. How do you send schmaltz from Babroisk to Leningrad? Her mother would wrap up the schmaltz in diapers. And then, you'll forgive me, she took the diapers and put it into a wooden box, sealed the box, and sent it to Leningrad. One day, she was sending the schmaltz to Leningrad. So they went to the post office, and it was a lot, a lot of schmaltz for the whole Pesach, for her and other families. So her mother asked her, Minna, if she could come with her to the post office, schlepping the schmaltz. He said, of course. So they went to the post office, and the man in the post office takes it, and he says, this schmaltz is going to leak. It's going to leak from the wooden box. I am not sending this to Leningrad. And the mother says, it's not leaking, it's sealed, it's fine, and if it'll be a little wet, no, we don't send such a thing. You need to go and get many more diapers to wrap up the schmaltz so it doesn't leak. And they got into an argument. The mother was very frustrated and annoyed. It was a long walk. <laughs> it wasn't easy. There was This is before Amazon. I don't know why they didn't call Amazon, but apparently there was no Amazon in the 1930s to send your schmaltz from Belarus to Leningrad. To schlep it all back home was impossible. So the mother looked at Mina and said, you know what, you stay here. Watch... The schmaltz was a precious commodity. I'll go home, I'll walk home fast, I'll get more diapers, I'll come back, and we'll wrap it again. So Minna had to stay two hours in the post office, waiting for mommy to come back. Now what do you do for two hours, yeah? Remember the kids didn't have phones at the time for two hours. We know today what people would do for two hours, they would watch my clips. But then... Or a class on double speed, and then you would finish after two hours. Maybe triple speed. But then you had to sit, and you had to actually be present. So Minna said, what did I do for two hours? I was staring at the box of schmaltz. What did the box have on it? The address of Drezer Raskin in Leningrad. For two hours, all she was staring was an address. And she said, I remember the address. And she told the woman running the orphanage the address. So she sent a letter to this address to her aunt, her mother's sister, Dreza, Nechama's sister, and saying, you have two nieces. They don't have anybody. Maybe you want to pick them up and raise them. But the Raskins already moved to another city, to another house. They weren't living there anymore. 
So when the letter came, it took a long time for it to come. When it came, there was nobody to receive it. One day, they had a son who, you know when you move houses, sometimes you don't remember and you go back to your old house. It ever happened to you? <laughs> I remember when I moved in Muncie from one house to another house. For a few weeks, I was going to the old house and then I walked in on somebody else's family. So I learned my, le- I learned my lesson. But, uh, I almost walked in. But, uh, yeah, like Hadassah, Hadassah Lieberman. A son, a son of the Raskins in Leningrad, he forgot one day that they moved, so he went off on the train station near his old house. So he's walking by his old house, and he realizes it's not, but then he says, you know what? Let me check in the mailbox. Maybe there's mail. They moved three months earlier. So maybe there's mail. Now, nobody was expecting some exciting mail, but you never know. So he goes, he takes out the mail, and he sees a, a letter addressed to the Raskins in Leningrad from an orphanage 600 kilometers from Tashkent, somewhere deep in Russia. You know, Russia never ends, right? Russia is a continent that ends, and that's why nobody could defeat Russia. It's impossible. Napoleon, Hitler, they always, they always have where to withdraw to. He brings home this letter, and he shows it to his parents, Dreza and Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Raskin. I say, that's it, we're going and he was sent to the orphanage, and he picked up these two girls, and they were reunited with their uncle and aunt. And later they escaped Russia, and they moved with them to Kfar Chabad. This was a Chabad family. And Tova married a, a fellow by the name of Altois, and Minaf married a fellow by the name of Rifkin. And they both built beautiful, beautiful families in Israel. I know some of the children, who they were reunited with with their uncle and aunt after the war. When I, when, I, uh, when I heard the story the first time, you know, I thought to myself, so many aspects of life, it's impossible to know the story. Hindsight, 2020. Foresight, 0 0. Sometimes 1 1. When she was steering there two hours in a post office, right, what would you do for those two hours? You'd be upset at Russia, be upset at the post office, be upset at the system. For good reason. It's annoying. It's frustrating. Nobody knows. It was those two hours that literally cha- changed this family, despite the unfathomable tragedies, which we also don't understand. You know, you say, why does it have to happen this way? I don't know. Why do they have to lose their mind? I don't know. Adelayada. This is what Mardukai understood so well. Mardukai, that's what the Madrash is saying. When he went there every day, he didn't know why Esther married this person. He didn't know what we know. We know why Esther ended up in Achashverosh's house. We know she saved the Jewish people. What he did know is, I don't have to know everything in order to show up. Have a beautiful week and a wonderful week and a lot of atzlocha. I have an announcement. Next week I'm in London. Next week I'm in London, so there's no class. The, huh? If you want to come to London, you come to London. The week afterwards is Purim. Tuesday, okay? So we have, we're taking now a little break for two weeks. The week after, my nephew is getting married in New Orleans. <laughs> so we're taking a three-week break. Okay? You'll go to the previous classes from previous years and you'll hear you'll have 20 classes. <laughs> you were there. The classes, you were there. You're going to just remember. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. 
please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.